Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show podcast. Today, we have beverage enthusiast Mark Gallo, legend. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Buster, for having me. So first things first, I want to I start this off with a bang. So I want to ask you a question that's been on my mind. I did a couple of breakdown videos of Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Why is there still a war going on between these two companies fighting over people arguing which is better and everyone has their favorites? How has it not, how has one not put the other one down yet? Because both need each other to compete and elevate their game. You see the same thing in the beer world. You've got Anheuser-Busch, which would be kind of the red network Coca-Cola on the non-ox side. And you've got Molson Coors, which is the blue network, which is like the Pepsi side, right? And between beer and non-ox, the number one and number two players are obviously jockeying for position for additional brands to resonate with consumers and eventually increase their market share. And so you can't be one without number two, and you can't be number two without trying to chase number one. So for these like uh, traditional old school companies, you know, Coco, obviously they've been acquiring new companies that have come up, but something in the last few years has been happening that has never really happened before. And that is creators with 10, 20, 30 million followers launching their own beverages, like the Nelk Boys with Happy Dad and Logan Paul with Prime. Do you think these old school companies should be shaken in their boots a little bit? Or what's your thought process on that? It is something that they are most likely paying attention to in terms of how they go to market to reach their audience, the authenticity that these creators have to the communities and the loyal fans that are out there. And you pick the two biggest names, right? The Nelk Boy and Logan Paul. And just remember that behind those faces, there are entities that are helping them scale distribution, manufacturing, and getting their product to retail and eventually to consumers. And so while they are probably more than just a, a face, they've got surrounded themselves with the best in class teams to help take their passion, bottle it, and get it to in, in the hands of consumers. Makes sense. And, and I, I want to give credit to KSI as well, who does uh, Prime with Logan Paul. Um, when somebody walks into their deli and they see like, uh, you know, an assortment of 30 or 40 drinks, but it's different in every single deli, how does that go down? How are these delis who have one, let's say one individual location, how are they sourcing, you know, what they have? Are they going and buying in bulk in like Costco or is like a rep from Coca-Cola or Pepsi reaching out to them to supply them with that stuff? How does that process work? Kind of in its big picture, beverage is a three-tiered system, mostly more on the alcohol side due to state in federal kind of regulations, but you got the manufacturer, the brands themselves. Then there is the middle tier, which would be distributors, bottlers, wholesalers, and third would be retailers. And a lot of legacy brands chose to use the three tier and have a route to market through a bottler or distributor that would deliver on their trucks to their stores and have reps in and out of that 
account day in and day out. That is how 95% of all of these beverages are making it into the bodegas, the mom and pop liquor stores up and down the street. And it is hand-to-hand -hand kind of combat and space is a premium. And on the non-alc side, right, there are slotting fees, which are legally paid by non-alc companies to have their product positioned at the right shelf and so many SKUs. That is not offered on the alcohol side. That is illegal. Gotcha. Hmm. Um, on, on the front of alcoholic versus non-alcoholic beer, two years ago, I'd never even heard the term non-alcoholic beer, but obviously there have been companies that have, you know, raised in terms of, uh, uh valuation in the billions of dollars, uh, is this something that alcoholic beverage companies are also thinking about and worrying about? Or do they think it's just a fad like most other trends, it seems, in beverage? I think they're reimagining what their portfolio should be. All of these alcohol brands at some point, at least on the beer side, right, have always had non-alcoholic beer. But it was the positioning of such brand, right, like O'Doul's. Take for instance, if you were caught drinking it, it means you were unalcoholic, you were recovering right from that. And there was a pseudo, hey, leave him kind of alone. And it wasn't built for inclusion. Now you've got athletic, partake, and Bud Zero, Heineken Zero Zero. And it's reimagining kind of the category for inclusion of, hey, I, I still want to be the life of the party. I'm just choosing to be a healthier person and I'm drinking for tomorrow in mind to try to avoid such headache and non-alcoholic beer, right? It's twofold. You've got the traditional beer that has dealkalized, been dealkalized, so it has 0% alcohol. And you've got a pseudo category coming up called like hop water, which is essentially water with flavored hops. And that is technically non-alcoholic as well. So hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm curious if it's ever going to pick up steam. I've sort of likened it to how like um 10 years ago people were talking about or you know always saying, yeah, people are definitely going to stop drinking soda one day. <laughs> yeah, I never mean, really it happened. was a trend that came over from Europe and I think it's up, you know, maybe 8 9% of Europe consumption is within non-alcoholic beer. Here in the United States, right, we're talking maybe one, two, three percent, but the brands these days are built to scale more than that. They've got ambitions to be 10, 20 percent of the entire beer category, whether it'll reach that, whether it'll reach it or not. The category is appealing enough now to everybody that it's made itself a presence at retail and in consumers set to try it and pick it up when they are at, at, at the grocery store. And it's like that piece again, it's about being included. I can walk in to a bar, sit down, not just order a pint of water, right? Now I can get a pint of non-alcoholic beer. Right. And you still look cool. It's like, um, what, what, what is liquid death? It's like yep. their whole, I mean, you know, I, I, it's interesting, and I, I'm curious the history behind how 
people grew accustomed to buying water in plastic bottles and you know obviously liquid death is a little bit more nuanced and and cool let's say they made water cool and i mean at least that's what the uh the the uh investing crowd or uh people who have it in their portfolio would would suggest um but when has has selling water always been mainstream and what <laughs> what makes one water brand more successful than another water brand is it I mean, competing guess... for the floor or the ceiling just like every other beverage category right there was premium waters there was economy waters and there was everything in the middle i think what liquid death truly did outside of the monumental and fantastic marketing right is they chose a container that was truly forgotten about in water right they ditched plastic and went into a can it was unheard of to have just a still or sparkling water in can you had the economies of scale of plastic and they were always trying to lightweight and get that thing as I don't even know how to say this. They were trying to just make it as cheap as possible and sell bottled water for under 99 cents, right? And Liquid Death said, hey, we're going to put it in a sustainable package. We're going to charge a premium and market it that way. The only other historical package was in glass bottles. And those were at high-end restaurants being served, right, to make that illusion of choice kind of like hey this is a, a premium water because it's in a heavy glass bottle usually on the green kind of colored side and so people would equate oh hey this is premium that's interesting yeah um yeah I, I remember you know growing up it would always be the glass you would buy the glass bottle and then you would reuse it and you'd be able to justify it they've done a heck of a job marketing it though i mean you see it on podcasts i don't even know if it's organic or not which if it isn't organic, then it's a hell of an ad that I'm even asking that question. <laughs> um, but who who is like the Michael Jordan of beverages? Is there anybody that comes to mind that has just, you know, done it over and over or, or stands out of, amongst the crowd in terms of creating or marketing beverages? I mean, I would think you would have to put Mike Rapoli right. there, who is the founder of not just Body Armor, but Vitamin Water. Right. And those are two billion dollar brands. And he's the only one that's done it twice. And so I, I would think if you're talking about a beverage entrepreneur, it's got to be him at the very top. And now he's on to his third endeavor uh, with tequila with his partner in crime, Lance Collins. So it'd be pretty hard to bet against him. He sold both to Coca-Cola. He sold both to Coca-Cola. Why doesn't Coca-Cola just give him another five billion now? <laughs> Who knows, man? He's, you know, a, a special talent within kind of beverage. He has systems and relationships, and that's a lot what the beverage industry is about. That people forget as is as great as the liquid is. It's about distribution and its relationships. Whether those are with your bottlers, whether it's with key account retailers whether it's with sales reps, it's, you know, convincing them that your passion, your determination, and your re resiliency is better than somebody else's. 
what does that even mean in this context? Like resiliency and passion. It's not like how, what percentage of that is how good the drink is? Um, you know, it's not always the best beverage that wins, right? I mean, it's about distribution, securing those relationships, securing those accounts that are influential enough, and then having some war chest to market your brand successfully and aligning yourself with talent, right? Body armor probably is not that's the same if it, if it doesn't find its way into having Kobe Bryant as an investor and a face to the brand, right? And so there's another take on is Kobe Bryant the next kind of like Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan was the face of Gatorade. Kobe Bryant is the face of body armor. And so athletes sell and the specific high value ones, they sell more. Yeah. It's um, yeah, obviously we've entered a different frontier, you know, Kobe obviously got equity and body armor on like Jordan with Gatorade. Yep. I, I wish Jordan, uh, he's done all right for himself, but um, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting how that side of talent relations has expanded as well. Um, I'm curious if, uh, so in places that are selling them, like let's say uh, CVS or Rite Aid or Walgreens or Walmart or Target or any place that's going to sell beverages but has a ton of locations around the yep. world, um, are there exclusivities in terms of drinks? Like can Coca-Cola say, hey, we'll give you $200 million if you don't sell any Pepsi products in your store? Does that kind of warfare go on? To some degree, it does. And that's what I was trying to allude with like slotting fees, right? And it's in CPG kind of in general. And, and that's obviously why some of the small guys think large chains are a deterrent to them because they just can't afford whatever that slotting fee is, whatever that pay to play per retailer looks like. Interesting. And then, you know, obviously paying an athlete or talent to be associated with the brand, whether it's Red Bull or Gatorade or uh, body or whatever it is, or, or an alcohol company, uh, although I bet that's less common. Um, it, it, I'm sure it's also part of the thought process is you're paying them for their, you know, ability. You're paying them to not market the other products as well, not just to market your own product. Um, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of, especially after the Kobe Bryant, you know, his, his family got hundreds of millions of dollars off of the uh, body armor to Coca-Cola exit. You know, I, I wonder from your standpoint as well, are more partnerships looking like equity deals for startups and beverages, or is it still mostly cash focused for, for these bigger beverage startups? I think it's probably still 50-50. Some want to have that equity side into it. Giannis is part of Ready Nutrition along with Sam Darnold, right? They're ambassadors, but they're also investors kind of in the brand. But then you've got others that maybe that's not in their business acumen of wanting to be an investor. They want to be able to just take a cash for an ambassador piece and, and have no real upside and there's no real 
right or, or, or wrong. It's just the business that they want to surround themselves with and move forward. Makes sense. Um, if you were to uh, figure out whether uh, you thought a beverage or a beverage startup was going to be successful or not, what would be the you know, indicators that you'd be looking for? How much is it founder in the beverage world versus beverage versus network versus, you know, any other subset you could think of? That's hard. The default would be kind of what that network is to get your product to retail, whether you want to start you know, DSD, direct store delivery, and use a distributor to get into retail. If you're looking at it from a DTC channel and you're kind of doing the fulfillment, maybe using a 3PL or outsourcing that all to kind of Amazon, selling and shipping liquid online, it's hard. So a lot of those brands that have a network have relationships and have unique ways to go to market in that three-tier system, that's probably a sign that they will be a winner versus a true DTC play. Then it comes into, I guess, you know, where is the founder building such brand and company from? Is it a passion point? Is it them looking to flip this thing over to Coke, Pepsi, KKDP, AB, Miller Coors in you know, three to five years? What's their track record potentially before in the, this space? And if it's not, what are they bringing to the beverage industry from outside that is unique and that it's Yeah, interesting. Um, for 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 the guys back to like, uh, you know, Happy Dad or Prime or things like that, for potential acquisitions for guys like them, how much do you think the Pepsi's, Cokes, I mean, you know, Anheuser Bushes, whoever it would be for the Happy Dad side, um, how much are they looking at pure financials and how much do you think they'd be looking at what you know the talent can then market for them and would there be like a significant premium on valuation just because they saw them as potential value uh as creators or spokespeople that is something that i'm not sure there is a right answer it'll be case dependent Happy Dad and the Nelk Boys obviously would give any acquire a unique marketing channel to a specific customer and consumer, something that might worry some potential acquirers would kind of be the age factor in terms of what their demographics look like. Um, but at the end of the day, these large companies will, will look at those financials. Can they help them? Can they turn you know, distribution around? Can they take them from 50 states to you know, stay in the 50 states? I'm sorry, but go deeper within distribution from the retail chains and whatnot, so. Interesting. Uh, are there any brands and beverage that you're just really impressed by? Um, that have been doing something unique, you know, whether it be companies like Liquid Death or, or maybe lesser known ones that you've just 
been impressed seeing how they how they operate? You know, I think the category that has everybody's attention is this better for you soda. And in that, right, there are two market leaders, and those would be Olipop and Poppy from that gut, gut health, prebiotic, probiotic. And what that category has done to be marginally better than what is out there, but still resonate with consumers in terms of the flavor profile, the historical significance of soda and, and pop. And so that is where a lot of this functional better for you kind of category is moving as it's just linear. It's less sugar, but there's something better for you within there for your immune system, your gut health. Some are spinning off in terms of brain and kind of cognizant. And so the less you have a consumer trying to guess what the beverage is going to functionally do for you, the better and more rapid adoption out there in the marketplace. Makes sense. Yeah. The, you know, it's so funny, like every time you go into like any CVS or Walgreens or wherever you see just so many drinks and you wonder how they can all be in business because, you know, you've never, for somebody who's not in, in the space or works in the space, you know, you never try any, you never hear anybody trying any, but you know, I understand a lot of, a lot of them I'm sure are. So when you walk into a liquor store, what grabs your eye these days? It's always the label. Um, so I'm unique, whereas I don't drink alcohol, but I own wine, uh, just because just for the hell of it, because I collect basically everything and like to learn the verticals. Um, but in terms of general drinks and everything else, yeah, it's, it's the label first and then the taste gets you coming back. Um, but for, for wine, it's just the label and age. Um, you know, those are the things that I'm interested in on that front. And yeah, I, guess... I mean, you've got basically three to five seconds to grab a consumer's attention sitting on the shelf, whether it's the dry shelf or the cold shelf. And 95% of consumers look at two things, price and that label. And does it speak to them? Yeah. And then I'm sure like uh, what happens with most other items is you convince yourself that it's good unless it's so bad that uh, you have no choice but to admit to yourself that you were wrong in purchasing said item. <laughs> of course. I mean, we're complicit in the marketing of whatever beverages or snacks that we're kind of buying that are, are saying this stuff. I mean, we'll tell ourselves a lie and say, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I've got more energy now after drinking such energy drink or, Hey, right, uh, right. I've got my protein after my protein shake, whatnot. So <laughs> it's true. How much does it cost to build, to make a beverage, um, and, and get it out there? Like what is the lowest level that it, it would, you know, it would take? It depends at what scale and what type of process, what beverage, right? I mean, a lot of these brands are CapEx asset light. And so they use a third-party contract manufacturer. And I happen to work for one of the largest in the United States of, and that is called NorCal Beverage, right? And so they would come to us and say, hey, what are the minimum run sizes to fill X liquid into X bottle, whether it's glass, cans, or plastic bottle, right? And so they're looking across the board, you know, some range, probably $2 a case to get made all the way up to $8. 
a case depends on the different liquid configuration pack out, whether it's a six pack, 12 pack, 24 pack. Does it have special film over it that's branded? Is it a clear shrink? So all kinds of different things go into building a brand and that's at least on the manufacturing. Then you've got to find yourself a formula house that will send you a market ready formula that is safe for consumers to drink. Usually a lot of times they help source some of those ingredients for you. So it is a big network to launch any beverage of any size. And then you've got the whole marketing side to it. And then you start bringing on athletes and I'm sure it's a whole nother thing. And yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I, I, uh, you know, I think it's uh, that initial overhead of having to estimate and just have things made at scale. If you're trying to be at any sort of scale is why, you know, we haven't, we hadn't seen that many creator beverages like we, like we do for merch or, you know, podcasts and things like that. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's only been a rush in the past, I would say five to 10 years that brands want to be national within two to three years, right? The, the craft beer scene built beverages correctly and they built them regional and they grew from you know, one state to two states to three states. And they had key metrics to understand, hey, we've got to hit X, Y, and Z velocities distribution before we jump and move over there. And it's kind of a lost art of having regional players. Everybody wants to use the DTC, Amazon to be everywhere to everyone. Uh, but there is something to be said to start small. A lot of brands are receiving the feedback of going, you know, deeper versus wider from a penetration standpoint on distribution and really solidifying that community early on. And that's the speed and, you know, the mode that some of these guys can use while they go up against the Pepsis and the Cokes and the Dr. Pepper of the world is their nimbleness, their readiness and ability to change formula, adapt labels, you know, do stuff on the fly. Right. What, what makes Coke and Pepsi so dominant is it's just their insane distribution over 70 years. Yep. Distribution is key within beverage and they have established networks, their bottlers and their distributor partners have deep, deep relationships with retail, with, sports partnerships with music venues and whatnot. And, you know, those are contractual negotiations that take place at the local level, along with high HQ levels from Pepsi and Coke to secure such assets. Right. Fascinating. Well, I definitely learned a lot. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Mark, I'm going to link all of your info in the description and everybody else. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for listening, Mark chat soon. Thank you, Buster. Cheers. All right. See everybody. Peace.